Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod today. It's down to the wire for Speaker Kevin McCarthy. We are stronger as a Republican conference when we work as one. Just days remain to pass a funding bill before a government shutdown. The man at the center of the negotiations joins us. I think focusing something along that border would put us in a really good position that we could get a stopgap measure to move forward. Stand with Crypto Day takes over DC. We'll focus on regulation with Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong. The US is behind here, and we've seen the the share of the US job market around crypto shrink from about 40% to now it's about 29%. And it's due to this lack of regulatory clarity. Plus, Republican presidential hopefuls take the stage, Bank of America's CEO doesn't see a recession coming, and Delta backing off changes to its reward programs. My favorite are those little Annie things. Don't they have little... Uh, oh, the, the pretzels? Well, like yeah. the pretzels? How about a cinnamon bun? Yeah, yeah, Cinnabon. yeah. Cinnabon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a winner. I'm CNBC producer Zach Valisi. It's Thursday, September 28th. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back to buy in three, two, one. Cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We are live from CNBC's annual Delivering Alpha conference in New York City this morning. We're ready to go, waiting for the crowds. I'm Becky Quick along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And guys, this is it. Delivering Alpha is a big deal. Every year we've been here. I don't know if this has been 12 or 13 years at this point. What are we up to, guys? 13. 13 years. years. Lucky 13. Um, Yeah, and and delivering Alpha all day, we're going to be talking about how to make sure you can get the most for your money. And it's a trickier time to do that in the markets. If you want to take a look at what's happening. And I want to look at that camera right now and tell you, Donald, I know you're watching. You can't help yourself. I know you're watching. Okay? And you're not here tonight. Not because of polls and not because of your indictments. You're not here tonight because you're afraid of being on the stage and defending your record. You're ducking these things. And let me tell you what's going to happen. You keep doing that, no one up here is going to call you Donald Trump anymore. We're going to call you Donald Duck. We haven't talked about the debates from last night yet. Did you watch them? I watched. You're kidding. Clips. clips. I was going to say, Lots of clips. <laughs> I got you. I, it was I, late. <laughs> I actually answered a poll that said you are A, Definitely going to watch the debate. B, not going to watch the debate. Or C, there's a debate tonight. And I know what you chose. You do. Because I know you too well. <laughs> if there's a smart aleck answer. If there's a smart aleck answer. Nine o'clock. Okay, I understand California. But that does not. you got to get to bed not. so you can get to the grocery store in the yeah, morning. Exactly. So I can, no, that nine o'clock is not happening. But I, I mean, I did look at sort of the synopsis of things. I don't yeah. think a whole lot went on. Can we... Divulge it's hard our, to do when the leading candidate isn't on stage. Right, but was, leading candidate. But c- yeah. can we divulge our, our off the the, the uh, set conversation this morning? Oh wait, remind me what it was. Who's the leader of the Republican Party right yeah, now? Yeah, that, that, that's I, and that was my serious question: Is it, it is former him. President Donald Trump, or is it House it, Speaker Kevin McCarthy? It's not McConnell, probably. No, I think it's not McConnell. It's not. I don't think there is one, and well, that's sort of the problem. McCarthy would be third in line there for the presidency. There has to be one. So. If you had to pick one, but how tenuous is the speaker's? Uh, even the speakership is right. tenuous. So is he the and can't he's having trouble wrangling guys. So maybe he's not the leader. But you're you're saying leader in terms of de facto in terms of it's like the de facto leader. Well, yeah. the, right now the de facto leader is, Donald is Trump. Trump. That's that was my question. I don't know the answer, but the, it, and the, you can the, sway me on either. The articles either. now are that that fraud decision from the judge. He could 
theoretically lose all of his properties. Yes, that's what's so crazy about it, and that's what that's why when okay. we have our discussions you about this and folks, you're back. Are, to, you're back to that. There's there's 33 percent of these. You would call them deplorable. I would not call them deplorable. What would you call them? Wackos, dead enders. I, no, I, I I just don't understand. No, look, I try to meet people where they are. I try to meet people. No, you where they don't. Are. I do. When have I, you tried to meet me? Where I, I try to meet you. I'm where over you are here every morning. Thank God she's here. Every morning Between I try us. to meet you where you are. You do? Can I talk about something? We need else? to try. Okay, go. Because I, I well, we don't know who the maybe Brian Moynihan's a leader. <laughs> good as anybody. I don't think he considers himself a Republican, but maybe he does. No, leader of something. Well, he is the leader of the Bank of America. Bank of America CEO Brian. Moynihan says that he doesn't believe a recession is imminent. We got the chance to speak to him at the uh, yesterday at the Economic Club of New York. He is the head of the nation's second largest bank. And he talked about Bank of America scrapping its call last month for a recession. Our strategies are no recession, very slow growth, you know, half a percent annualized GDP growth, second and third quarter. You know, so it slows down troughs and starts coming back out, gets back up to above 1% at the end of next year, i.e. 24, and then finally gets back to 2% at the end of 25. So this is a, you know, a low thing. Gradual. So would yep. you call that a soft landing? Or that, that, that's that a soft a, landing that's by soft definition landing. because it's not. It's now, not actually. Now, the recession. interesting thing is what caused them to change that? It was the consumer earlier on. What happened, you know, if you're in a, uh, you know, 22 fall heading into in a rate structure and all that stuff, and they're going to push it in, they have to. It's the only way to correct it. The consumer kept going. What's changed now is the consumer slowed down. So that, that means you've got to now have more risk that you could push the other way. I asked uh, Moynihan what worries him the most. And the answer that uh, he hit on has to do with America's ability to compete and banking regulations. We need businesses to continue to prosper and continue to hire people and continue to spend money on innovation and continue to spend. AI doesn't do any good if we aren't there to pay the bill to build it. You know, that's because through our... And I think that's where we've got to be careful some to the bank regulatory rules or other rules. If you, the spirit, you know, that thing, that's what makes America different. The European economy and the U.S. economy pre-financial crisis were nearly the same size. And you would have been reporting breathlessly that the EU economy is going to be bigger than the U.S. Mm-hmm. It's grown by about 15 or 20 percent. The U.S. has grown by a lot more, from 12 to 20 odd trillion, from 12 to 15. That's what makes America. We recovered from a mess. We figured out how to get through it. We took off. That's the question. So anything gets in the way of that, from whatever side of the aisle it comes from, that's not a good thing. Because in the end of the day, those jobs are there because business is out there. Uh, guys, he did say geopolitics is a big issue because I started with just saying Jamie Dimon's book earlier this week and says geopolitics is the thing he worries most about. Um, Moynihan agreed with that and said those are the things you can't control. But he is very worried about the Basel III requirements that are going to be put on banks that will require uh, the big banks to pay to hold an additional 10 percent in capital on their on their on their books and uh, banks from 100 to million or 100 billion to 250 billion in, in assets to keep an extra 5 percent in reserves. He said that's money that would go out and be lent to American businesses, to American consumers, and that we not only won't be able to make those loans and grow our economy as much, but it will put us at a severe uh, disadvantage when it comes to dealing with European banks and what they can do. So that if you are a company that, let's say, makes some sort of widgets uh, for a manufacturing line, it's going to cost you much more to do business than somebody in Europe who's doing the same thing. And that's a global business, and we will lose as a result. He, he pointed out that, you know, we've done so much better than Europe has over the last 15 years, just in terms of growing our GDP, and he thinks that this is a big 40%. reason, something 40%. that would really hurt. And we're onshoring. 
So we're onshoring, and we pointed out yesterday, what are labor, what is labor costs? Well, we were saying a seven B- bucks. employee for employee of BYD in China is $7 seven dollars. an hour. So What's if you want to be the be manufacturing here? center in, in the world, and we're going to be $65 an hour, it, for, more. Chips, too, for everything that we're bringing back here, not just, not just cars. Even, right. for, if we are onshoring, truly onshoring, because one of the things that helped us keep inflation low for 25 that's where years. the friend-shoring situation right. comes into But all play. the exporting of all our jobs, that's, that was a problem, but it did keep uh, labor costs down. And now it's coming back. So there's all but kinds of But we also of ran into the problems with that during the supply chain issues right. of COVID. Right. But there's all kinds of inflationary yeah. pressures, maybe, that aren't going away. Maybe they're, maybe we do have stagflation. Maybe we don't have a... The, the, a that's what, look, the, that was a Larry the Fed, Summers argument from the The, the, the Fed last orchestrates a slowdown, but doesn't beat inflation. Worst of both worlds. Delta Airlines now backtracking on changes to its SkyMiles loyalty program. An overhaul earlier this month that triggered backlash from members who said it would be harder and more expensive to reach a higher status or preserve access uh, to airport lounges. Speaking at an event in Atlanta yesterday, the company's CEO, Ed Bastian, saying there was no question we probably went too far with the changes, he said, and modifications would be made. What those are, we don't know yet. The company overhauling the rewards program because of a swell in high status members after status and miles were allowed to roll over during the pandemic. Number of diamond medallion members nearly doubled. As a result of all that, Delta said the demand for premium products and services exceeded Delta's ability and assets. Sebastian said that Delta would announce the changes in the coming weeks. And I know a lot of road warriors who are I don't know if they're excited, but they're uh, waiting to find out what that looks like. You know what? Kudos to Ed Bastian for actually doing this, because I can point to a bunch of different rewards programs uh, or yeah. things that, that have gotten way worse because of the pandemic. Disney Vacation Club. I'm a member. Yeah. You can't use any of your Vacation Club members to try and book anything for a year in advance at any of the properties down in Orlando because they had everybody who rolled over right. those points. Same thing. So, Bob Iger, I hope you're listening. Like, Watch out for what you're doing to the people who are actually your loyal customers. You can't really get a seat in one of the lounges. Really. Right. It's like it's preferable to go out into the regular the part. Poloi with yeah, the peasants? Yeah, the right. actual part. No, it's, you can get a seat easier out in the regular. You know, go sit at, uh, well, my favorite are those little Annie things. Don't they have little... Uh, oh, the, the pretzels? Pretzels. You like the yeah. pretzels? How about stuff? a cinnamon bun? Yeah, yeah, Cinnabon. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a winner. Not a big one. Like the little, the little minis. Yeah, because those don't have any calories in them. I know. Yeah. Yeah. They don't have those in yeah. those lounges. All they have is like frosted flakes mm. and like hard boiled eggs. You like Where have those they things. Been? Those hard boiled eggs, huh? You like hard boiled eggs. I do. Sincere. I just don't like them in airport. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy discusses the looming government shutdown and odds of a Republican deal before Sunday's deadline. We're in a better place than we have been in other years, and we want to solve this problem once and for all. I believe this is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to deal with the border, deal with our funding, and put us on a path that this country is stronger. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. I'm producer Zach Valisi. It's Thursday, the waning days of September and the waning days of the third quarter. And the clock is ticking on the deadline for Congress to approve a new government funding plan. Without one, the government shuts down at midnight on Sunday morning. Federal employees who are considered essential will be furloughed. Government contractors will not be paid. Social Security, Medicare, and veteran benefits 
will continue to be paid. But the funding for federal food assistance has just a few days of cushion before money runs out. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has a limited window left to break the stalemate with the right-wing flank of his Republican Party in the remaining hours. McCarthy is working on his colleagues to approve a temporary measure that would keep the government open. These members support deep cuts to federal spending, and their numbers are such that the Speaker needs their votes to pass any sort of measure. The negotiations are on. Speaker Kevin McCarthy joined Squawk Box this morning. Mr. Speaker, thanks for taking the time. Uh, we appreciate it. Thank you. It looks like it must be a very important meeting. You got your jacket on. I, I, I hear you. I know. It is very, <laughs> very, uh, very solemn, very important, as is uh, what we're going to talk about right now. Do, do you think it would be overstating it to say that you're fighting basically a two-front war, one with, with the Democrats and one with members of your own, of your own party? Is that overstating it? Look, uh, we are stronger as a Republican conference when we work as one. And we watched that through all the battles we had at the beginning of this year, especially when we came to the debt ceiling. Um, Schumer and the president believed they couldn't meet with us, that we couldn't do anything. And once we were able to pass a bill, the negotiations started. We've been struggling all summer trying to pass the appropriations bill. But let me first put it in context. We are in a much stronger place overall as a country because normally we don't move these bills through committee. The Senate usually never does that. They wait till Christmas and they write an omnibus with a few people in the background. In that debt ceiling, we put a 1% cut across the board if you didn't do your appropriations job. The Senate has now moved them through committee, but they haven't moved one bill off the Senate floor. We will, by the end of this week, have taken up 73% of the discretionary spending. So what we really need to do is put that stopgap measure that gives us more time to finish the work on both sides. But we're in a better place uh, than we have been in other years, and we want to solve this problem once and for all. If you are able to get your plan, uh, I don't know, you need four different votes, I think. Let's say that, that that goes through. It probably, I'm sure, it would not pass the Senate. Uh, we know that. Is there any chance that you would reconsider the Senate version, uh, pass it, maybe with some help from Democrats, have a, an amendment that does something for border security, and then come what may, try and hang on to, for dear life if there's some type of challenge to your speakership? Would that ever happen, or are we headed for a Sunday shutdown? Look, now remember, the Senate is their own body and the House is their own body. Um, it's not ours to surrender. What happens is when we pass a bill and they pass a bill, we find where we have differences and come to a conclusion. I look at the current Senate bill that does nothing when it deals with the border. Now, don't take my word for it. The governor of Massachusetts has declared a state of emergency. The mayor of New York City says it's destroying his city. The governor of New York is telling people to go someplace else. New York is spending more than $1 billion just on hotel rooms. El Paso mayor. So this is really something that I hear from Democrats and Republicans that want to have something done. I think focusing mm -hmm. something along that border to change some of those policies the president changed would put us in a really good position that we could get a stopgap measure to move forward. And that's what two houses that's work together to make a difference on. 
But Speaker McCarthy, we, we spoke with the, one of the heads of the Problem Solvers Caucus in the House earlier this week, and that's, again, 32 Republicans, 32 Democrats who are, are trying to find consensus. They said that they are putting forth a bill like that. They have a bill that they have uh, support for from both sides of the aisle that would do just that, take care of some of those border issues and, and move things ahead, but that they can't get you to take that to the floor. Would you consider that? I don't understand why they think I can't take that to the floor. I haven't seen that in the Senate, Billy. The question you, Joe, just asked me, will I accept and surrender to what Senate decides? The answer is no. We're our own bodies. No, um, I'm, I'm we sorry. Been, I'm talking we about within the House. The bill we actually passed a bill that dealt with, early on, the border, and the Senate's done nothing on that. The Senate's done nothing on when but it comes you, to Paris Bill of Rights. Something? The Senate has done nothing when it comes to energy, and now we have $100 a barrel oil. But listen, I believe this is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to deal with the border, deal with our funding, and put us on a path that this country is stronger. I will listen just as I sat yesterday. I also think another provision that we can deal with is a debt commission made up of Republicans and Democrats, much like how we did the old BRAC commission to deal with our long-term Which the problem debt solvers problems. agree with you on that, sir. I know. But, uh, I had a Ms. very Speaker, good is meeting. This, is this going to happen? a very good bipartisan <laughs> meeting yesterday with that. That's something that we have in our continuing resolution as well. It's something I had advocated with the president early in this year. It's something I've talked to Hakeem Jeffries about. I think there's a bipartisan what? plan here that we could actually solve this and move forward. But it's not going to happen by ideas. Sunday. It probably oh, won't don't happen give by up. Sunday, Come. Though, right? So, oh, listen. I know Sunday's football day. If people have this type of attitude, they <laughs> quit in the third quarter. One thing, if I hope you realize about me, is I never give up. And you know what? If we have well, to play into overtime to get it right, I will do just that. How will that work? So you, when is the vote that, you, that you'll be able to have in the House? What are the chances uh, today or tomorrow that, that you're, you would able to be able to pass that? And then what would be the next step? The, the, you know, the, what, you'd have to send it over to the Senate. They'd say no or, or, or uh, move on. Or, and, and it seems like then we're up against Sunday. Then we're up against Saturday at, at midnight. Yeah, well, I think we could work through the weekend, and I think we could figure this out. Look, I look at the country today. We've, we've got people striking from California to Michigan. We've got price of gasoline, $100 a barrel. We've got inflation like we haven't seen before, and we've got a president sitting in San Francisco just trying to raise more money. I say, get off the fundraising trail, care about your nation, let's get together. We've been able to do it together before when we sat down. We can solve this problem. This is an actual an opportunity to put the country on a better path, to secure our borders. Yeah. Don't do it because Republicans are concerned about it. You've got the leading Democrats in the nation. But, Massachusetts, but, but there's you, not one Republican congressman from Massachusetts, and the governor has declared a state of emergency. Elizabeth Warren, wouldn't you yeah, care it, about that? Schumer like, comes from it, it New York. Seems, you got his governor, you got his mayor crying. Can you please help us on this? This is the opportunity we have to do the right thing. Remember, it seems like it was just yesterday um, we were talking about the debt ceiling, and you were able, against all odds and people's expectations, to get a bill passed. That's what forced President Biden, it seems like, to, to the negotiating table. So maybe it all hinges on you being able uh, to pass something today or tomorrow. <clears throat> so instead of talking about where the president is and what he's doing, let's talk about that other flank and that, that, that yes. uh, two-front war I was talking about. What are the chances you're able uh, to actually pass something? 
Look, I, I got I got challenge inside our conference. I've got members who have held us up since the summer not to be able to bring our appropriation bills up. Otherwise, we'd probably have them all done. I've got members who will not vote to have a stopgap measure to continue to fund government. I've got members who say they'll never vote for an omni. Well, if you won't do any of that, it's hard to govern. And so, yes, but I look at it, every challenge I have is an opportunity. <laughs> look, for all you that's sitting out there in business, you have, you have the ability to hire and fire who works with you. Somebody else hires and fires who comes here. I only get the opportunity to inspire them. So I don't give up on any single one of them. And I try to find a place that we can bring it all together. There's many times before I'd sit on this show and you would say, there's no possibility you're going to have to fold in a debt ceiling. I don't view it as a folding or something else. We've got to look at government differently. It can't be one side wins and one side loses. Why can't we just have America win? We know our government's designed that we're going to have compromise. I realize I'm not going to get everything that I want. But I do know one thing that Democrats and Republicans across this nation want is the border to change. So let's sit down, put that element in it, let's finish our appropriation bills, and let's work towards things that we can start looking at that are challenges 10 and 20 years from now. Stop being bogged down on the day-to-day -day items when we can put ourselves in a place to make sure the next century is ours. You won't give me odds on whether we... We shut down, I guess. I mean, people are at like 80% now, Mr. Speaker. <laughs> I, I, I understand you, you, you want markets if, to roll and do whatever you if can. If I was on DraftKings, if, if I was on DraftKings, where should I put my money for the, uh, for the, the, the whether the government shuts or not? I, I'm leaning Look, toward, I, I, I wake, don't think the I odds will be up, very, I won't make any, go ahead. I, I wake up every day optimistic. I'd say, put your money on me. We're, we're going to get this done. Now, well, I'm not you, counting you out. Just, that's, that's one thing people say. Like, that's one thing people say. Don't count you out. But I'm just talking about whether you're able to wrangle those uh, those crazy cats on both crazy cats. That sounds like a beatnik. But those crazy wrangling cats that you're trying to, to accomplish. What are the chances that that finally happens? I don't, I don't know. If you, if you want to do it by a clock, I don't know what to give you the odds on a clock. But if you want to if you want to gauge at the okay. end of the day, do we get this done? The answer is yes. We will get this done and we'll okay, be good. better and stronger for it. Um, but I don't give up if the clock runs out. I'm okay playing in overtime. I know you did. Yeah, you played. Uh, you had what was that? What do you call that? 15 innings or uh, uh, your speakership? That was 15. Look, I'm 15 Irish. Rounds. I don't care if you have to fight. I'll go 15 rounds. You don't give up. Hey, you speaker. Yes. No, I was just going to ask you. Every website this morning is running a poll on who won the debate last night. I'm sure you watched it uh, intently. Do you have a view? You know, first of all, I'm not going to criticize anybody that's on there because that's a very tough place to be and to describe something in one minute. I, I think Nikki Haley continues to rise. I thought Tim Scott had a very good night. I thought he started strong. Um, I thought those two good points. But for everybody on that stage, I think they're still so far behind where Donald Trump is. It's, it's a pretty tough place to be. But uh, I admire. Look, I think the governor of North Dakota getting in different policies. I think there was something for everybody. But I would put it from this perspective. I like the idea that Republicans have a lot of people talking. But I watched your show this week and Barry Diller being a very strong Democrat saying an incumbent president shouldn't run for office. Liberal newspapers call him as saying President Biden should not run. I just think Republicans are in a much stronger position. And I am always going to be excited when something is held at the Reagan Library, because if there's anything that our nation knows is, if Reagan was here today, what would he tell us? Believe in the exceptionalism of America. 
And it doesn't matter what party you're in, but if your principles and you believe right. it brings people more freedom, let's be happy conservatives. We don't have to be angry to prove we're more liberal or more conservative. Believe in your principles, but, be but happy Speaker, about it, and solve the problem. But Speaker, I think part of the idea of being a conservative, and, and, even the, and even Barry Diller's comments on our program earlier this week were reflective of supporting somebody who was against Trump, right? I mean, his, his support for Chris Christie is because Chris Christie is actively in the fight against Trump. You're not. Yeah, that's true. I'm not. But I don't think that's a position that Barry Dealer has because he's conservative. I just think he has a Trump syndrome, that he just personally dislikes Trump. That's his, that's his right to do it. But don't, don't miss principles from just personalities. You never would have thought... You never would have thought, sitting here right day, right now with the latest poll from the Washington Post, that Donald Trump is leading Joe Biden by 10 points. You know, as you sit right, in your cocktail true. parties or any other meetings around a lot of Democrats, they're all saying the same thing. They do not believe Biden should run again. And you're right. worried about right, what happens Mr. in the next. Mr. Speaker, there, apparently you need to go somewhere. You got other stuff that you need to do. Uh, so we're going to let you go. But appreciate all the time you've given us. Uh, this morning. Thank you. Thank you. And I appreciate you wearing jackets when I'm on. We, we're going to do suit. that. We'll, Looks good. We'll do that. Well, OK, thank you. Thank you. It's for you. <laughs> it's slimming. Next on Squawk Pod, Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong is in Washington, D.C., talking to lawmakers about policy around cryptocurrency and how he believes more clarity is important for the crypto economy. If we want the U.S. to be relevant as a financial hub, a tech hub, to project American soft power through our reserve currency and with U.S. dollar stable coins, it's really imperative that we get this right. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Up on Becky. Q. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. This morning, we are live from the 13th annual CNBC Delivering Alpha Conference. This is a place where we are waiting for the crowds to show up. It's going to be an all-day conference where we dig into what's really happening in the markets and where you can expect to make money. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong has been spending some time in Washington, D.C., talking to officials about the crypto industry, even as Coinbase looks to expand overseas. I spoke to Armstrong yesterday and asked him about the event he organized called Stand with Crypto Day. Yeah, Stand with Crypto Day. So, I mean, what this is really about is there's 52 million Americans in the U.S. who have used crypto now. That's 3x as many as own an electric vehicle. It's more than the number that hold union cards. It's a major constituency in the U.S. And many of them are quite frustrated that the U.S. does not have clear rules on the books yet. And it's created this unfortunate environment of kind of regulation by enforcement, which is pushing a lot of this industry offshore. So I'm here in D.C. with 40 founders of other crypto companies. And it's been really exciting just to get uh, the members of Congress to meet people from their own jurisdictions or districts uh, that are starting companies and trying to build real value and innovation and jobs here in the U.S. in their own district. Now, let's talk about the timing of this, because it is on the eve, if you will, of the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried, which starts next week. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, that's been a really unfortunate ind industry event that I was hoping we could kind of turn the page on. But unfortunately, the, the trial is so salacious that it does keep getting headlines. I mean, look, I think that uh, if, you, if you go back in time, this reminds me a little bit of like the Mt. Gox issue that happened. And we have to be honest and say that there has been some b negative bad people who have been attracted to this industry. But, you know, they should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. That does not mean that the industry writ large 
is, is based on that. In fact, there's 40 founders, you know, as I mentioned, that are here with me in D.C. that are building this in a trusted and responsible way. They may not get the same salacious headlines, but they are here and they're going to have a bigger impact over time if we can create clear regulation that protects consumers, avoids things like FTX, but also preserves the innovation potential. What kind of reaction are you getting? And I know you've been quite critical of, of critics of the crypto industry, of course, Gary Gensler, uh, Elizabeth Warren and others. But do you see the, anything shifting as you're there in D.C.? Yeah, I mean, actually, from our perspective, there has been a pretty positive development. Uh, we saw two bills earlier this year that got bipartisan support in the House committees. Uh, there was a market structure bill and a stablecoin bill. I think that was really positive. We also saw uh, the judicial branch of our government um, send a very clear, clear signal in three separate court rulings by three separate judges that the SEC's approach uh, was not working. It was arbitrary and capricious. It was unlawful in some cases. And so that's sent a very clear message to Congress as well that they're going to have to step in here and act by creating new legislation. What is the, what is the state of play with the SEC case versus Coinbase? Yeah, well, we feel very confident about the case. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned there's been three judges that have ruled in other cases around crypto, and some of those facts are relevant in our case. For instance, um, in the Ripple and the Terraform case, the judge ruled that the underlying assets themselves were not securities. That's an important fact in our case as well. So, look, I mean, it would have been better if the regulator had simply published clear rules, had engaged in a rulemaking process as they're required to do under the Administrative Procedures Act, and that way we could all follow it. But in the absence of that, it appears now that the courts are going to have to come in and create some of that clarity for now. And I think ultimately it'll end up being Congress. One of the things that you are doing is expanding internationally uh, and doing so aggressively, I imagine, as a function of the regulatory or tight regulatory body in the United States. Is that what's happening? Well, Coinbase is a, based in the U.S., and we're not leaving the U.S. In fact, we're, this is the biggest market for us, and we're the leader in it. But we also want to be an international company that allows us to you know, make many, help many people around the world benefit from this technology as a way to update the financial system. So actually, we do have a pretty exciting announcement about that. Uh, today, we're announcing that our international exchange got regulatory approval uh, to offer perpetual futures or derivatives trading to retail customers. And we're really excited about that just because it's a way to bring in a whole other set of people around the world, actually in over 100 countries, who can start to participate in this more open and fair and free financial system. When you look across the globe, do you say to yourself that other parts of the world are now much more favorable towards crypto? And, and I know you've made the argument historically that from an American perspective, you don't want to see American companies effectively move abroad. Yeah, I would. Unfortunately, I would have to agree with that, that at this point, the U.S. is behind, uh, severely behind, actually. Um, so if you look at the other G20 countries, 83% of them now either already have crypto legislation on the books or it's in progress. It's being, it's being uh, drafted, implemented. The U.S. is behind here, and we've seen the, the share of the U.S. job market around crypto shrink from about 40% to now it's about 29%. And it's due to this lack of regulatory clarity. So I think when I speak with members of Congress, I had a great meeting this morning with, with Nancy Pelosi, for instance, and a number of other meetings later this day, today. Uh, the general broad consensus view, it's, it's kind of common sense. It's let's get some clear rules on the books. Let's protect consumers, make sure that kinds of things like FTX can't happen, and then also preserve the innovation potential of this industry. What do you think, though, has to become the inflection point for that to happen in the United States? I, I know you've talked about some of these lawmakers looking more favorably uh, upon uh, what you're doing in the crypto industry, but there still seems to be this resistance. There still seems to be this worry that 
it's almost too hard to regulate some of these cryptocurrencies that are that that even if you could regulate them uh, here in the U.S., that you can't regulate them properly outside the U.S. and that unto itself creates the conundrum. Hmm. Well, I'm not sure I'd agree with that. I, as I mentioned, you know, mo the vast majority of the G20 countries have already kind of put their regulatory framework in place. We've seen that now in, you know, Singapore, in, in Hong Kong, in, in the U.K., in Brazil, in Australia. So um, it's really just the U.S., which is kind of an outlier here. And that's something that I think is very much within our power to control. In fact, I would say it's a national security issue. If we want the U.S. to be relevant as a financial hub, a tech hub, to project American soft power through our reserve currency and with U.S. dollar stable coins, it's really imperative that we get this right. Uh, I saw you took to uh, Twitter, or I should say X now, uh, in mm -hmm. regard to J.P. Morgan Chase uh, limiting the way uh, they're allowing customers in the U.K., that is, uh, to interact uh, with cryptocurrencies. What do you think is going on there? You know, one, I'm not sure. Um, I hope to find out more information on that. But once in a while, we do see a bank somewhere in the world that uh, decides they want to really just deplatform this whole industry. And I, I don't think that's okay. I don't think that's the role of banks in our society. I think the government should decide what is allowed and what's not. And the government in the UK, through Rishi Sunak and uh, Andrew Griffith, um, the city minister in London, have made it very clear that they want the UK to be a Web3 and crypto hub. They're trying to attract businesses there. And so I was disappointed to see Chase UK's stance on that. I hope that that was a misunderstanding that will be uh, clarified in the coming weeks. Talking about platforming or deplatforming, uh, one firm that definitively now looks like they want to platform crypto is BlackRock with its ETF. Where do you think that goes? I think there's a lot of people who are pinning a lot of hopes on that. Yeah, well, it, BlackRock is a huge financial institution. It's a very important indicator. And by the way, there's been, I think, about eight different ETF applications filed by, you know, Fidelity and many of the other largest financial service firms in the world. So that's been a huge um, endorsement and exciting uh, point about where crypto is headed. And those firms would not be pushing those ETF applications forward if they weren't seeing demand for their customers. By the way, Coinbase was named as the custodian in, I think, all but one of the, those eight applications for an ETF. So that was a great endorsement of the kind of trust that we've built as a company and, and really the first publicly listed company um, in the U.S. But my, my sense is that that will draw in new pools of capital into crypto. I think it, it's going to be a very good thing. And um, unfortunately, the SEC has been rejecting their applications. And the judge right. actually just recently ruled in that, that Grayscale case that the SEC's actions were arbitrary and capricious and unlawful. And so I think that's about the worst thing a judge can say about a regulator other than maybe outright corruption and fraud. So I think they're going to have to actually approve these, these applications and really give equal treatment under the law. What do you think the timing would be if that, if that was the case? Because I think there are a lot of people, as I said, pinning their hopes on those ETFs, and yet, obviously, they have not happened. Yeah. Well, that's a question for the lawyers. I may be a little above my pay grade. I, I don't know exactly how that'll happen, but the, the trajectory seems pretty clear in my mind. Are you surprised that Bitcoin, has, some people would say, has been quite stable or some people have said should have been higher, or should have moved higher, especially if you believe that these Bitcoin ETFs uh, are in the offing? Well, you know, I've been presently, uh, pleasantly surprised at how resilient the crypto prices have been. Uh, you know, I've been through probably four of these cycles now, going back over 11 years. And, um, you know, just anytime Bitcoin is above 20,000, it's hard for me to feel like we're in a crypto winter. That, that would have been an incredible outcome just a few years ago. Um, so people always have to kind of look, look out at more than a few quarters or a few years even. Look at this. What is this trend over, over a cycle? 
So I, I'm pretty happy with how resilient the crypto prices have been. And um, I think Bitcoin's up at least 50% year to date, probably because some of these, these court rulings that have come out, the ETF applications, uh, we'll see what happens. Nobody can predict the future. Right. I know it's hard to predict the future, and you, but you have had the experience now of seeing these, these winters and summers and the like. There have been so many predictions, though, from people like Kathy Woods and others who have said, you know, it's going to go to 500,000. It's going to go to a million. And, and those are sort of the shoot the moon type of numbers that some investors get. That's why they get excited about something like a Bitcoin. Are you in those camps? Well, I'm certainly very bullish on crypto, the price of crypto over time. And the reason is just the fundamentals, right? I mean, it's provably scarce. There's not going to ever be more than 21 million Bitcoin. Um, if you look at the, the way our economy is developing, it's increasingly becoming more digitized. It's more of it is happening, happening over the Internet. Um, and Bitcoin, especially in this environment where most of the major countries around the world are, have high inflation, they're, they're putting up big deficit numbers. I think that uh, Bitcoin is the new gold standard. It's, it's, uh, it's a new digital form of that. So if you believe all these things that more of the economy is going to be happening on the Internet, crypto is the native currency right. of the Internet, and people are going to be looking for a haven from you know, deficits and, and inflation, I think crypto has a, lot, a long way to go. One final question related to all this. Uh, the Federal Reserve also, uh, where you are today, what have you made of what they have been doing and, and what does that impact, or how does that impact, I should say, the price of crypto today? Mm. Well, the Federal Reserve is kind of engaged in a number of different areas. I'm not sure which one you're referring to. But um, if you want to just talk about um, interest rates, interest I think rates. that, yeah. Well, so that's obviously brought down growth stocks. And, you know, crypto sort of has been treated almost like a growth stock, uh, oddly enough, even though it isn't one. Um, but it, that brought the prices down quite a bit in, in 2021. Um, in 2022, along with, with everybody else. But I think the most exciting thing that the Federal Reserve is doing is they're, they're starting to look into this idea of a U.S. dollar-backed um, stablecoin, and how can we get clear regulation around that would allow the U.S. dollar to preserve its reserve currency status in the global crypto economy. Great. Brian Armstrong, thank you very, very much. We will be back uh, in Times Square uh, tomorrow. Make sure you join us. And that's the pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. <laughs>